welcome to the show off the record uh in this episode i am with today speaking with rachel zimmer this is episode number 20 of off the record a uh, little background on rachel uh she's a leader in the toronto tech community and she's incredibly passionate about accelerating entrepreneurship in the canadian ecosystem uh, currently rachel is the general manager of entrepreneur uh, first in toronto it's the world's leading talent investor uh, ef brings together extraordinary people to build startups from scratch in London, Singapore, Berlin, Hong Kong, Paris, India, and as of uh, September 2020, Toronto, which uh, Rachel is is, uh, is part of. Uh, through its $140 million fund, EF invests in individuals to find a world-class founder, develop an idea, and fund the technology businesses that they create. Uh, prior to EF, Rachel coached over 50 startups as an entrepreneur in residence at Ryerson's uh, incubator, uh, called the Digital Media Zone, or short for DMZ. And before coaching uh, startups, she co-founded, scaled, and exited a company called Five Crowd, all in under three years. So we'll talk about that a little bit as well. Uh, Rachel, it's awesome having you on our show. Thanks so thanks so much for joining today. Thanks for having me. I'm really excited. Cool, cool. Um, start off on like a, on a personal side. Um, I I know that you're a, a second city grad, among other things. Um, just curious, how does that experience of acting, uh, you know, affect your character, you know, from a professional perspective? My gosh, if you ask my team, they'll be like, there's drama and role playing in everything we do. Um, but no, <laughs> no, no, no aside, I think um, it's a passion area of mine. I went to, you know, school for, for performing arts growing up and took drama in different ways and, you know, through post-secondary um, but I think the biggest takeaway for me and how it relates to business is you always need to be performing, no matter what it is, no matter who you're in front of, um, and you always need to really understand your audience to put on a good show. So I'd say that like core principle in acting and drama is something that um, is obviously very core and important in, in the business world. So that's probably the biggest lesson that translates well. Interesting. Yeah. And as like a former CEO and founder, I'm sure, you know, as a CEO, and I'm sure when you coach other startups, the CEO is really much a face of a company uh, and how they present themselves, reflect themselves and the character which they display publicly or even internally in a team really helps uh, make, in my opinion, makes the success of a company uh, in, in many ways. So um, um, talking about kind of, you know, you working now with EF and then your prior experience uh, at the DMZ having come across, you know, those 50 companies, if not more, uh, you obviously have a lot of exposure and uh, experience working with entrepreneurs. What now in your role, uh, you know, at EF as uh, as a general manager, what do you wish entrepreneurs would ask you, but they rarely do? But they rarely do. Really good question and a hard question, and um, and I think I'll answer it with this, which is. Um, Often I'll meet with teams for a variety of things, whether it's sales help or marketing help. And very rarely will a founder at the end of that meeting say, hey, and here's my ask of you, Rachel. And I always think about it as such a lost opportunity, whether it's like asking for an intro to a customer, asking for an intro to potential talent. Um, so I guess, you know, my, my wish for entrepreneurs is like have that tenacity that in every single meeting you're getting something to move your ship forward. And, and so I guess it's just as simple as that. I wish there were more asks because I'm happy to help. And then on the flip side, I want them to just be maximizing their time so they can do the best thing they can for their business. And why, why do you think that they um, hold back or they don't go for those asks and are a bit more 
not aggressive, but um, demanding, I guess, in, mm. in terms of uh, things that they need or help for, but they just basically don't want to overextend the person or look bad because they don't know the answer or, you know, they need help. So my, my best guess at it um, is that I actually think a lot of people don't isolate, say, hey, these are the three things I really need to be focusing on with my team. And once you're really clear on your focus areas, it's easy to ask for help. But I actually think the root issue is a bit more existential and core that sometimes teams don't actually know what their core focus areas are. Mm -hmm. And then it's, it's not obvious that at the end of every meeting, okay, I either need something to help with customers, talent, or my product. These are the ways I could be asking for help and then going out and doing that. Um, so I think that that's my, my, my best guess for what the root issue is. Mm -hmm. Talking about um, team dynamics, let's talk about mm -hmm. co-founders. Um, I, I know you previously mentioned to me um, that, you know, talking about co-founder problems is something that kept coming up a lot, a lot in a lot of conversations that you had when you were coaching and mentoring them, you know, at the DMZ and maybe other places. But why do you think it's such a challenge? Let's, let's, let's start there in terms of, you know, understanding or, you know, as a, as a startup, how you get involved with your co-founders and some of the challenges that you need to navigate through and, um, and, and address as you're building a company. You know, if you drill down to what a co-founder relationship is, um, you have reputational risk, financial risk, legal risk, and it's someone or individuals you're going to be spending tens of thousands of hours with. And so when you think of the weight of that kind of decision-making of who you're going to be engaging with as a co-founder, it's arguably more serious and more intense than a spouse <laughs> because of the amount of you know um, weight that comes with that. So I think just kind of calling out how hard it is that um, it, it is kind of the first step, right? Um, I think the second thing is people are attracted to working people like them, and that's often not the best co-founder to be working with. Mm -hmm. um, and so now at Entrepreneur First, what we pride ourselves on is we help people find their you know, ideal co-founder. And so we bring people together from all walks of life. We ensure the quality bar is really high. But part of the goal is that, you know, if two people went to the same program, went to the same school, and had the, you know, thought in the same way, quite often they'll end up founding together. But is that the optimal pairing? Or someone that comes from a totally different background with a totally different set of life experiences and maybe a shared set of values. That's probably pretty important. Mm -hmm. uh, that, that, kind of, um, that kind of assessment piece, I think, it, it's just outside of people's networks. And then mm -hmm. secondarily, um, the, the human instinct is to gravitate towards people like them. So now at EF, um, you know, I have a lot of fun bringing exceptional people together and kind of just letting the magic happen and, and seeing people meet each other and, and identifying who they think would be a great co-founder. Interesting. And how, how do you, like, I feel like in many ways, it's kind of like matchmaking, right? Um, <clears throat> what, what does that matchmaking look like? Like, how do you look for traits between one co-founder, another co-founder that haven't met, but you know that they are there and that they're interested in something and what, what makes you want to connect those two, two people together? So we actually don't say, hey, like Aram and Rachel, you guys should be co-founders. All we do is we put the 50 amazing people in a room and then we put a lot of frameworks and experiments together to see people kind of try and, and test and gel and try working with each yeah. other. 
And um, however, with that being said, once the cohort does start in the back of our minds, we do think like, okay, here are five people that could be amazing for, um, or here are 10 people that could be amazing for this other person. So mm-hmm. if they're having problems kind of finding, you know, figuring out who they gel with, we can point them in the direction and say, Hey, have you talked to this person? Um, we think they could be great. But to answer your question on the traits, um, what I can speak to on the behavioral side, we look for the same thing on CTOs and CEOs. Um, and it's really three core things. The first is, do they have this crazy, relentless drive to achieve, this hunger to win, that grittiness, that resilience, that no matter what, they find a way to make it work. I mean, as an entrepreneur, I'm like, you know, like you get punched in the face while chewing glass. Like that, that's essentially what the entrepreneurial experience is, right? And so you need to have shown that you can go through, you've done that in different parts, whether personal or professional in your life. So that's drive to achieve. And then I won't go into as much detail on the other two, but it's followership that we look at. And then this outlier trait of challenging convention. So we find that if we find really good examples across those three, we can, um, you know, with pretty good confidence and um, have, have a great quality cohort. Mm-hmm. And I, I know at Entrepreneur First, you really try to, when you're looking at co-founders, you know, between two or three, what what is your perspective on that like i know you you want to you think two is enough i I like i'd love to know why do you think it's enough and you know how do you kind of differentiate and challenge that that type of thinking yeah look like my my opinion on this comes from two places one is having been a founder with one other co-founder but we did have a dynamic of three a couple times and it was really really hard so Mm -hmm. i've got personal experience of the challenges with it and then now at ef and there's a pretty strong opinion that Teams of two are poised to have the greatest success. Um, Everything from communication. So if you've got two people, it's really easy to be communicating and simpatico on things versus as soon as you add three, or add another to make it three, all of a sudden you've got asynchronous communication where you know two people might connect on something and then one person's left behind right. um, and then vice versa. And then often what ends up happening is a bit of a two-on-one. And the two-on-one, whether socially or in a business setting, is never, never fun. Um, and so, you know, from a from a social dynamic standpoint, that's where I guess that that part comes from. And I think outside of that, um, you know, the the EF perspective is it's so much to try and do out the gate starting a company. You need to test your co-founder relationship. You need to pressure test a problem, come up with a solution, test the solution to now add this like crazy social dynamic on top of it, where there's like confusion and power and decision-making. It's just, it's possible. We've, we've invested in threes before, but that's definitely um, a riskier investment for us. And, and definitely one that we usually ask some tough questions before we, before we make that call. Mm -hmm. And just going back to your, you know, experience of five crowd, you know, how, how was that? I mean, what what was your kind of learnings there in in your in your journey you went through as 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 the as one of the co-founders? Yeah, I I really when I look back at our experience, I think the relationship I had with my co-founder is one of the greatest strengths to our business and um, success. Um, Bram and I drive each other batshit crazy. Um, we have a <laughs> lot of fun, but ultimately we're super complimentary and challenge each other. Um, and if Bram's on something, I know it'll be great. It's like, cool, Bram's got it, boom. And then on the flip side, um, you know, he'll, he feels the same. And the way we actually divided roles and responsibilities was super unusual, but it really worked for us. Um, I led the business, team reported into me. And then once a week, I would sit down with Bram and I had a Google Doc that said, shit that keeps me up at night. And Bram would sit down with me and he'd be like, okay, what are the five? What are the five this week? 
and we'd run through them and he'd be like, cool, I'm picking this one. It'll be off your list by next week. And so he would just pluck them off and then week by week we would go through it. Um, and the way we summarize it is like I was working in the business, like building it, driving revenue, hiring, building the product. And then Bram mm-hmm. was working on the business, like taking mm-hmm. different pieces that were stressing me out um, and then working on the business to make it uh, much stronger long term. I, I really love that uh, in the business, on the business. It's something that I I came across when I was, um, I think, at the Fireside Conference, uh, the retreat mm-hmm. Um and I came across this uh, CEO who runs a couple publicly traded companies, and he, I told him about all my problems. And he's like, you're, it looks like that you're working in the business too much. You're not working on the business too much. So how did you go about separating out those, those things with a brand? Um, because, I mean, as a CEO, I'm sure um, you want to work on, you know, on the business. You can't always be in the business. How did you know what things to, you know, delegate out or uh what things he could take on and you know and obviously you would trust him to to do those um uh, those requests it's so hard it was really case by case but i think one example of one where we both worked on the business versus in the business was um, anytime we had friction um we realized that we weren't aligned at the highest level so for example if i was ready to sign a client and bram's like rachel why are we taking that client on it's totally off our use case it's going to mean we're going to need to totally pivot how we're building our product i'm like yeah but money see the dollar signs like let's let's get (laughs) that kind of friction it actually wasn't about, the, it wasn't about the client. It wasn't about the contract. It was actually, if you take it up a level, we weren't aligned on what kind of business we were building. Mm-hmm. And so that's an example of one where it wasn't like, okay, Graham, go figure out what kind of business we're building. It's like, okay, together, what's the vision of our company? What do we want to be when we grow up? What's the mission that's going to take yeah. us there for the next two years? And so that's an example of one where we both did that, got to a really good place. And then all of a sudden, those day-to-day, do we sign this client? Do we go after this kind of client? That was all within the framework that had been set. Um, but unfortunately, there was no um, there was no framework, like two-by-two two of like, if this, go here. If that, <laughs> go there, unfortunately. It's never, ever that straightforward. Yeah. I wish it was, but it's not. Um, Going back to you know your experience now with EF or just in general, I'm I'm curious um, as as an entrepreneur, you know, if I if if I have an idea first, uh, instead of finding a you know a partner first to to work with, how do you go about picking your co-founder? Assuming I have an idea, ma'am, I'm maybe a subject matter expert in what I do around this idea, and I see there's an opportunity, um, but I don't know how to execute it. I don't know how to find my co-founder. What kind of things would you recommend? So I guess I'll take a bit of a contrarian view, which is, okay. um, A, I buy in big time, obviously, with EF and with my experience that having a co-founder is a better path than trying to go it alone. Having mm-hmm. a co-founder means you've got someone emotionally to go through the highs and lows with. And, you know, when one person's down thinking the business is over, the other person can bring that positivity and pull you up. And especially at the beginning, each person brings their own set of knowledges and experiences. And ideally, that's IP in itself with their two founders. So I guess I'm a big believer in a duo versus solo founder. Obviously, there's exceptions to the rules. But but if I were to do it, I'd want to be, you know, have have a co-founder. And then if you buy into, okay, you want to have a co-founder, the second piece is, okay, if one person has the idea and the other person is joining... My observation with EF, and, and it's quite interesting, is it actually never works. And if one person brings the idea, it's their idea. 
Instead of if you bring a problem and say, hey, this is, you know, a huge issue in the industry. I've started thinking about how to solve it. But like mm-hmm. if you and I were brainstorming, you know, if I brought this problem, you'd say, oh, have you thought about this or have you seen that? And then if we build the solution together, it truly will be our shared baby of a business versus mm-hmm. my business that you happen to come join. And really at that point, why are you not just an employee, right? Versus versus right. And um, so I guess when do you buy into co-founder? If yes, secondarily, I would not recommend pitching ideas. And what we see in our cohorts is that even though we preach this, when people join and they start pitching their idea, no one ever partners up with them because no one wants to work on someone else's idea. It's it's really interesting because I went through the Founder Institute uh, when it first came to Toronto. <laughs> it was actually the first one in Canada. And um, uh, Sunil, who, who runs it, he... Um, he uh, I recommended that I come join it because, you know, I've known him before and it's everybody's supposed to go in there with an idea. And uh, if your idea doesn't make it over the next couple of workshops or whatever, you then can pick who you want to maybe work with. And the problem with that, and I've, I've, very, I've very seldomly seen it success, as you mentioned, succeed is that is somebody's idea that my idea failed. So I'm going to, you know, in order to stay in the program, I'm going to tag along into somebody else's idea that, you know, I have to, or, you know, I don't have to, I could leave the program, but I'm going to be invested in with what they're, what they're pitching. And it's got nothing to do with the problem. I, I could maybe resonate with the problem, you know, when they're pitching it and like, okay, maybe I could get excited around, but somebody's already going with an idea. So it's very, it's to your point, like, um, it's risky uh, in, in many ways. Um, what, where can you go and find um, co-founders or people to find similar problems to work around? Um, like, you know, I'm sure with EF, you have some, some strategies and some ways to connect people around it, but um, where are other places that, um, you know, um, you've seen success around uh, people coming together on a problem and then building out an idea around it. So I promise I'm not saying this because I work for EF, but, here, but here's what I'll say. Um, it's really hard to find someone that is ready to take the level of commitment of going full time that is interested in the same problem space that brings a complementary skill set you know, to yours. It's a really yeah. hard person to find, right? And so I guess why I get really excited with Entrepreneur First and why I decided to join was mm-hmm. I'll, I'll share an anecdote that really resonated with me. We had a second time founder join our first cohort. And I actually asked him, I was like, why do you need us? You've, you've made a killing and you've done so well in your first startup. And he was like, mm-hmm. look, I did the first one alone. I don't want to do it again alone. I want to have a co-founder in the second journey. And I've spent X number of months going to bad meetups, eating bad pizza. I don't want to <laughs> like, if you can carry so an amazing, amazing group of people for me, like, th- that's incredible. And, and, and there's very few places where you can find that. So yeah. I hate to say, you know, entrepreneur first is the answer, but it kind of is. And that's why mm. it's why I was so excited and that they were, launching, they were launching in North America and, and why I'm still excited about the value prop. Very cool. Very cool. Going on a personal tangent, yeah. uh, you know, before uh, I continue with some of the questions, I, I found that you're a big fan of board of, of, of game boards. Is that right? I am. <laughs> uh, what, what's your favorite one? 
Oh, I'm so competitive. So I'm the oldest of four kids and I grew up with a lot of board games and all of us are highly, highly competitive. So it, we usually play within the family. Otherwise, we we don't make friends um, in a funny way. Um, but the, the game I grew up playing was actually Scrabble, nerdily enough. Um, so I played every Saturday morning with my dad um, and I actually still play with him now. It's a, it's a ton of fun and I love geeking out uh, to board games without shame. <laughs> and why is why why Scrabble? Why not? Uh, battleship or you know clue or anything else oh good question I, I guess it's the strategic components like every game is so different um you know my mind works really well to like rearrange letters um thirdly enough and like chess and uh, my partner is super into chess um and he can't understand why I can't get more excited about it but thinking 10 moves ahead versus <laughs> a few moves ahead and like playing yeah. where you're at um, I guess that's why it's uh, it clicks for me Interesting. Cool. What about you? Uh, I like Monopoly. Nice, <laughs> nice. Uh, it's the one that I could. Uh, I have fun playing with my kids. Um, with uh, that and Battleship with my son. Um, nice. Clue is also a big one in our household. Nice. Yeah. My my daughter's always curious and always trying to figure out what's who's lying or you know who's who's the killer with what weapon. So. It's always a fun thing that we did during the pandemic, uh, being locked up at home yeah. for a couple months here in Spain. Uh, so game boards was something that we really leaned towards in order to keep us going through our days. Um, going back to uh, um, uh, your your journey with Five Crowds, I wanted to kind of ask some personal questions, if you don't mind. Uh, you know, you, you went through an exit, you know, you built a company and... Um, you know, some some founders tell me that like ten years is like the mark when you know you should you know exit a company uh, after building it to a certain point. And that's kind of been like the sweet spot I keep hearing time and time again. Um, wanted to ask you, why did you decide to sell at that time? Yeah, it's it's a very fair question. Um, and you're right, personal, but I'm happy to share. Um, we didn't have a timeline in mind. We were just looking for four things in life. Um, and we agreed to our like personal assessment meeting. Bram and I checked in with each other quite often to make sure we were delivering against the things. And the four things we really were optimizing for was fun. It's like, is it fun day to day? Obviously there's going to be not like 10 out of 10 days at that level, but overall, if you're going to spend 10 years of your life doing something, you want to enjoy it. Right? So fun was one profit, both for the business and for ourselves. We wanted to make sure that, you know, if our market rate was X, that over time we were at least getting yeah. that right in some way, shape or form. Right. So fun, profit, scale. So both of us love scale. And that's really how, you know, for the fourth thing that we care about impact. Scale can get impact. If you can have a really meaningful, you know, you know, drive on, on a high number of people, you can then drive impact in the world in a meaningful mm -hmm. way. Those are the four things we were optimized mm -hmm. for. We weren't for sale, quite frankly. Our mission was to unlock the power of freelance and share it with the world. And when we saw, you know, thousands of freelancers getting paid, having a meaningful part of their income outside of big urban centers, and we were powering folks that were just, it, it was a meritocracy. People that were really good doing their work were able to get access to that work. And, and, and um, you know, we, we got really excited about our mission. When we were approached to be acquired, you know, what we, what we loved was that, A, it would help us achieve our mission quickly in a really big way. Right. When we went okay. through our personal goals of like fun profit scale, we're like, whew, we'd have all these resources. As soon as we plug into the mothership, we'll have access to 3,000 clients and building on our 200. So you just kind of like start doing the equation, going through that decision-making set. And it's like, yeah, let's do it. Why not? 
I mean, at the time we were 28. So it's like, all right, we're young. If we can go have a great exit, it's a great first chapter. And, you know, we can do it again at some point. So that was, it was a very personal decision for us. And um, I look back and I'm, I'm proud, but um, I think that there were also a, a lot of learnings. And if I were to go through it again, I would definitely, um, you know, approach things, um, obviously taking those learnings and doing things a bit different. Okay. Well, I'd, I'd love to learn more about some of those learnings, but uh, what was it like to go through an exit? Like stressful, emotional. Um, how was the process for you? Yeah. So I'll talk about two things. One is pre-exit while you're going through due diligence and you're trying to run your business as an operator, plus also run a process on top of it. And I heard someone describe this, it's a really like graphic analogy, but it stuck with me. You're kind of like standing there naked for a prolonged period of time while everyone's like examining every different square. And we were acquired by Onyx, it's like one of the largest private equity firms. These guys are good, right? Our due diligence request had like 350 items. And each of those items in the request had like 10 files that were required. We didn't, like some of the things that were being asked were totally reasonable if you're buying like a global public company. But in our world, we're like, oh my God, how do we get this together? So it was it was really stressful to your point. And, Wow. But also just the, it, it was trying to drive the car while also, you know, give the blueprints of the car and explain how it's working and talk about the 10 year plan. So, so the two things together were really, it was, it was hard, quite frankly, that's the before the after I found actually harder. Um, I had spent three years pouring my heart, soul, top five priorities, not showing up to things into this business. So it was my everything, right? And then to go from it being your everything to being like, huh, someone else owns the keys to the car. Huh, tiring approvals now need to happen. Huh, like all these small things that you're not the, you're not the mom anymore, right? And and yeah. I really struggled on, I'll use the mom and bear analogy, like I wanted to protect and keep things as they were. And I think that was really toxic. So we actually, like the, our, our um, acquirers, we agreed, mm-hmm. um, we promoted my number two, she ended up leaving the ship, and then I stepped into a more senior role in like the portfolio company um, that was just totally separate from the business so that I could have impact in another spot, but then also not be toxic, holding back the team of trying to keep things as they were versus growing it to where it was. So I'd say that was probably, that's probably the hardest six months of my career, trying to adjust, trying to lead. Yeah. And adjust, but then also realizing that new normal um, in, in a tough way. And I mean, so, so just going back to what you said, I could really resonate with that because we spent, we had an acquire last year that I spent three months going through due diligence around and um, uh, the deal ultimately kind of fell apart really close around to COVID and it was a ride sharing company and I felt exactly like that. I felt like that naked person that I was, uh, it's a great analogy because it's so true and people were asking me questions and doing due diligence. And like we had this data room and it was so, so, so stressful. And at the same time, uh, I was trying to run a company, but I've, I, I genuinely kind of fucked up because I focused too much on the sale, not on the business and the sales pipeline. So for me, when the deal fell apart, I basically had no sales pipeline and I had to rebuild one from, from, from scratch. And then the pandemic hit, it was like just really bad timing. Um, how did you keep yourself going at that time between the stressfulness of like an exit, but if that fell apart, you got to make sure your company is still running. Hmm. I think, um, two things. One is that, um, 
we had a really, really good tight knit circle around us. My partner um, is amazing. So we would like do our normal build and working on the business during the day. He'd come like Graham's golf. Like we were just all hang out. Plus also our CPO, we'd stay from like 5 PM till midnight doing up the, the, the sales stuff. So we basically mm-hmm. did jobs but we had our people there to like okay. help get in the weeds and I think that it made it fun right like as much stressful as it was it was like us going at it together and then um the second thing mm-hmm. is that we time box it so from when we had our LOI like the letter of intent uh you know agreeing on the business terms to um when we actually sold that was a very compressed period and that was by, by our force we basically okay. said this is going to be a giant distraction yeah. If while we do it, it's going to be short. And if you guys are not interested at the end of that time box, we will be happy to walk away because what we don't want to do is, is kind of yeah. really impact the business. So I think yeah. those two things really helped. It made it hard con- compressing due diligence into a really tight period, but it made it painful shorter versus dragging that out. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Um, and a question here I'd love to see if you could answer is what you know, you said it like, you know, the mama bear approach, you're building a company, it's your blood, sweat, equity, you built that all, the, all these years. Um, how do you keep yourself motivated after an acquisition? <laughs> Honestly, I don't know. I'm just wired to build <laughs> and even have impact. And it's funny, someone asked me that question last week. I don't know, I feel like if you're just wired to achieve, it's like that dopamine hit that I'm, I'm truly addicted to. And um, I guess I'm here, here's something helpful, I guess I'll share versus just being like, I don't know, I'm crazy and sick. Um, how I know, um, but, but no, I think a more helpful thing is I believe, I've, I've heard people say your career is like a marathon and you just need to chug along and keep going. That does not work for my personality. I'm an interval training girl. So like I go really, 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 really hard for three years and then I chill and go travel or do something for four, four, four or five months and I go really, really, really hard again. And then I, and that's been the pattern. So I've taken three sabbaticals in between each career move oh, okay. and I, think I need to do it for the reset, the recharge. Um, and it's worked really well for, for my personality. Very interesting. Yeah. The sabbaticals. I mean, I, uh, one day I'd love to have a sabbatical after exiting this company or whatever whatever happens, but definitely taking time off, I think is super critical, which is um, a good like segue into another question I have is, you know, after taking time off, uh, after exiting with five crowd, you know, how, what did you reflect on? You know, uh, what, what, what were you going through, you know, personally in terms of, okay, what's my next thing I want to do? Where do I want to go and help out? Do I create another company? Do I go help out more startups? And uh, how did you end up at at um, Entrepreneur First? So I definitely think I'm a lifelong learner, and what I'm like, I'm just very, very curious um, about everything. And so the biggest thing I reflected on was just wanting to get exposure to more problems, um, and specifically problems in emerging markets and like global public health. Like I've yeah. so during my time off, and um, people would think I'm crazy. Like I would go to I went to really rural parts of like northern Philippines and did homestays. So like I literally just stayed with families and I found myself last January, like around a kitchen table with these like five boisterous ladies that all had like 10 kids, 15 kids, 18 kids. And I'm 32 and they could not believe they were about the same age as me that I didn't have children. Like they were just like absolutely flabbergasted about it. But on the flip side, they didn't have, they didn't have access to contraception. 
And so that's an example of something where why, why isn't there access to contraception in the Philippines? There's a massive number of people living under the poverty line. Why? And so when you start like understanding people's perspectives, they thought I was crazy. I thought they were crazy. I'm like, you have 15 mouths to feed? How the heck are you doing? So I think just immersing yourself in really different situations. I'm specifically interested in developing markets where there's just really big problems to solve. And fun. like, if you can have a huge impact drive building a for-profit business, in areas, um, you know, where, where you've got some te- technical background or whatnot, um, you know, that's that's what I spent my time doing, like just having stimuli of what's going on in the world. And then YEF, um, EF actually reached out to me, and I was like, no, I think I want to build again. Um, and then the more I found out about EF, I fell in love with the mission. Um, and I also thought it would be great for whatever I do next, because basically I'm meeting exceptional, exceptional people that come through the program, uh, right. exposure to all kinds of really interesting problems. And so I thought, what a way to help the ecosystem and help get people, you know, uh, you know, build great companies. And then selfishly at the same time, you know, I check off a few boxes of seeing that great talent, getting exposure to the problems and, and whatnot. So that's that's a bit about the journey and then why I chose to, to come to EF. Interesting. And so I wanted to ask this before, but um, what what tips, tricks, strategies can you tell uh, our our, our our audience, our, our, our listeners, in terms of what founders should really need to be aware of before selling? Ooh, before selling. Hmm. <laughs> so I think the biggest thing is, is making sure you're clear on why the acquisition should happen on both sides, for the acquirer and for your company. And I think if that's super clear and tight, a, the transaction should work because you yeah. should all be on the same page, clear on the music sheet that you're all thinking off of and, and running forth. And it should be clear in your mind from a personal perspective what, what you're doing and why you're doing it. And I think where acquisitions go wrong is when um, my partner works in M&A, so I see a ton of, a ton of deals go through on that side. Um, I think when things go wrong, it's when, um, oh, we're, we're actually hitting these two objectives actually getting the two maybe even three objectives and there's that lack of clarity then all of a sudden what ends up happening is um integration challenges how all, all that kind of stuff and the due diligence gets really confusing everyone's DDing that business from all different sides so I guess right. that's maybe the biggest thing of um uh, of what to think about and then i'd say the second thing is have the right partners at the table we had an exceptional law firm. They were our 911 and 411. It was Ben and Jones, like a big Bay Street firm that were so good mm-hmm. to us. Um, you know, we, we have the right, you know, iBanker, the right um, accounting partner. Because if you do, it'll make your life easy. If you don't, um, obviously, it'll be painful. And, and I've gone through having the wrong partner at one point. I've, I've only ever been in one lawsuit. And I unfortunately had to sue a former accountant for like horribly incorrect financials that cost us a lot of money. So wow. when you have the wrong partners. It's painful. It's ugly. It's terrible. And when you have the right partners, it, they'll just make things better, right? So that, I guess maybe the two. Okay, sweet. No, I, th- I think you're right. Like we um, we had a challenge with like the partner, the law firm that we brought on as well. And I think it was also a detriment, I think, to the failure of the whole uh, acquisition. So yeah, definitely. I, I, I can definitely resonate with that and highlight that that's super, super important to having a good exit. Um, uh, <clears throat> okay, cool. Um, Wanted to kind of end, end some of my last questions off in terms of, you know, you're 
you're um, you've been at EF now for a little bit of time. What would you say, aside from everything that you mentioned, um, want to give you like an opportunity here to really kind of sell EF in terms of how they're um, a really founder founder first or founder support driven organization. Um, you covered a lot of great things already in terms of why you're there. Anything else that you've seen um, as something that, wow, like, you know, EF should really talk about this more, really sell this more as like one of the reasons why founders should choose them? Um, thanks for the question. I think that I needed to see it to believe it, to be honest. So now that I've gone through a cohort, um, I'll just share an, an anecdote or a case study. We had um, an amazing single mom um, who just finished her master's in AI from Queens, applied to the program. She saw an article in the Global Mail about us. She's like, yeah, there's people in my network I could found with, but I'd really love to like see really great people. And then we had a recent PhD grad from Mila um, join us who was a deep, deep expert in computer vision. They met on week one of the program. She grew up on the farm, so she's like a good old farm girl. And when they identified together that there was a huge opportunity applying um, the CTO's skill set in computer vision to apple orchards. And that if they could do that, they'd be able to unlock massive, massive um, issues of, of apples going like uh, having diseases in orchards if they wow. just detected it with the computer vision earlier. And so I guess they applied. Week one, they met each other. They've now raised a significant amount of money, and they've got a huge number of clients that are in their test. And that was five. They start. They met each other five months ago. So I guess the biggest thing for me is like they both said, "Yeah, there's people I could have founded with." But they just are so happy they found each other because they're they're just the absolute right complementary people. They enjoy each other. They've got aligned values, and 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 I think what they would play back to us from an, from an EF perspective and why they've been grateful for the program is it's speed speed to value, speed to valuation, speed to impact in the market. And that's what our internal mission is and um, to be the fastest path for global winners. So we orient everything we do about speed of the highest mm -hmm. potential people so that they can have huge impact and we could just throw gasoline and, and catalyze that in, in any ways. Feel we that fire. Yeah. Exactly. Whether it's capital, talent or customers. Interesting. Okay, cool. Well, yeah, that's something that I think you could do a great campaign around uh, that story. <laughs> um, uh, some, some questions before we wrap up, uh, Rachel, I wanted to ask with all your experience, and I was like asking these questions because I always get varied responses, uh, at the end of these recordings, but what would be, uh, advice to yourself? You know, if you were in your early twenties now with everything that you know, now, what would you say to yourself? I'm going to cheat and pick two. Okay. Um, one, think big, especially being Canadian, think freaking big. We do not think big enough. What's the impact you're going to have on the world? And I think if we can take the world's most ambitious people and push them to, to, you know, have that kind of perspective, um, things would be really different. And so I guess now I'm asking myself that question. I wish I pushed early 20 something Rachel with that kind of like really big global scale question. And then the second one, um, and I think I learned this, but I, I would reinforce it back to my early twenties is there's no substitute for hard work. Full stop. Hard work is just what's needed to like push something forward to have an impact. If you can work five times as hard as the person beside you, you're going to be successful because um, not a lot of people are willing to do that. No. That's, it. That's probably the, the second one. No, I, so true for both. Um, <laughs> I think in the Canadian ecosystem, people don't think large scale enough. It's like, what's in my local 
micro environment, you know, you know, in Canada, or, you know, locally in Toronto. But I think there's an opportunity in Canada to really, really um, help a lot of the businesses there, startups, really focus on a very global approach instead of just like one that is national or provincial. So yeah, huge. I totally agree. Last question. What would be your advice to a smart driven founder or, you know, two co-founders who are raising money this year? There's a lot of capital out there right now and it's competitive. So there's a lot of capital The markets are hot. Even with the pandemic, there hasn't really been a massive shift in, in the funding environment from, from what I've seen. And so with that, I'd say, you know, the biggest thing you can do is show really good traction with customers. At the end of the day, you can present, Hey, here's the massive problem I'm, I'm solving. And here's the customer's willingness to pay for this solution. It sounds so simple and basic. Like it does, it sounds wildly basic. However, very few actually do that well. Um, so I guess that would be my advice. Paint that massive picture. Why is this a big market? It's no longer about being a unicorn. It's about being a decacorn. So how are you going to hit your 10 billion um, mm -hmm. in, in a massive way and, and show some proof points that you're the right people to do it? Awesome. Cool. Uh, Rachel, it's been awesome having you on our show. Thank you so much for joining. Thanks for having me. I really enjoyed it too. And uh, for everyone who's listening, this was another Off the Record episode podcast with the goal of building a community of founders and VCs, investors around so they can help each other build better businesses. So thanks again, and I'll see you next time. We are proud.